Before we start, I want to thank all of the Weird Libertarians patrons for being a part of the show. You can find out all of the benefits of subscribing on Patreon at joinwallplus.com. That's W-A-L-plus.com. You'll get bonus content, access to the complete archives. There's over a thousand shows that you can't get in the public feed, and you'll be supporting all of our great shows. Thank you especially to our $100 a month members, John Pusillo, Vincent Peichel, Lars Nordskog, Jake Dell, Matthew Durbin, Reinhold, Christy Avery, and Jason Doolittle. We also want to thank our main sponsor for this episode. Uh, it is Iconic Insurance. 15% of Americans are left to find health insurance on their own. And even if you get health insurance from your employer that doesn't work for you, Matt Allen and Iconic Insurance can help you find the right insurance. Just head over right now and contact him at iconic-insurance.com slash libertarians. We'll put the link in the description if you can't remember that. But Matt is a longtime listener of this program and a great guy and a good friend of mine. So please go support him and reach out right now. Thank you. And now let's get started with our show. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for being here with me. And uh, I'm excited today about today's episode. Like, you know, we do a lot of current events and topical stuff. Not today. We're talking about Martin Van Buren. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't mean to insult my, my guest, but, you know, we are all about history here at the Chris Spangle Show. Uh, and I have a podcast called The History of Modern Politics because I think all history is relevant to today. And once you learn history, you're never all that uh, surprised. You're never all that upset. You're not freaking out about the future because you've seen it all before. Uh, Benjamin Harrison had to deal with a pandemic, too. It's all fine, and we're still alive. Um, you know, and Martin Van Buren, the uh, uh, my guest, let me introduce my guest first. That would be more polite than we before we start talking about Martin Van Buren. But Gary Frankel is with me today. He's a graduate student over at the University of, sorry, there's a text message covering the bio, a Texas A&M University's Bush <laughs> School of Government and Public Service with a concentration in education policy and management. He is a graduate fellow at AIER, a Young Voices contributor and a Chalkboard Reviews uh, breaking news reporter. Check out all those great uh, organizations. Uh, so, Gary, like, are you just into history? Like, you woke up and you wrote an article in AIER.org about why we should care about Martin Van Buren. Sort of a weird <laughs> topic. He's one of those presidents in the... Like, the only thing I know about Martin Van Buren is my hometown of Plainfield, Indiana... Martin Van Buren was coming on the National Road, which is 40, I-40, and he got to Plainfield, Indiana, and the people there were so ticked off about the condition of their stretch of the National Road that they, in, the driver intentionally threw him out of the carriage. He hit a, a big tree that lived for like 200 more years uh, and bumped his head, almost had a concussion. Uh, like and so I went to Van Buren High School for kindergarten. Like that is the extent of my Van Buren knowledge. <laughs> so like, are you some sort of Van Buren stan that just wakes up in the morning, you know, and starts talking about Martin Van Buren, and you're very excited about it, or what? <laughs> you know, all my colleagues think that I'm a Martin Van Buren stan, but I I really don't agree with a lot of his political views. It's just that I find him a very historically interesting figure, and. Obviously, my background is is mainly in education policy, but within education policy, I'm particularly interested in 
um, civics, historical education, where that intertwines on the policy side. And I'm particularly interested in the political history of the United States um, in pursuit of that. And when you look at somebody like Martin Van Buren, we as Americans tend to glorify the flashy historical figure at the center of everything who commands a lot of attention wherever he walks. And in that era, that guy is really Andrew Jackson. Um, But within those eras, you have a lot of people who are quietly incredibly important, uh, incredibly influential. And in the case of uh, Van Buren and one of his rivals, John Quincy Adams, you have people where everything that they did that didn't involve being president was 10 times as interesting as anything they ever did as president just because of the impact and the legacy that it left. Yeah. No, like Benjamin Harrison is the uh, local president here. I live about five blocks from his house. Huge conservationist, minimally impactful presidency, very impactful in the city. Um, Grover Cleveland, you know, went on to be a Supreme Court justice. Like, there's this weird thing, Gary, where, like, we know the Civil War, but everything else that happened in the 1800s in American history is a mystery. Martin Van Buren could have been in the antebellum era after the Civil War or before. So, like, when was he actually president? He was president. He was first elected in uh, 1836. He took office in 1837. Uh, and then he lost pretty badly in uh, 1840, and so he left the White House in 1841. Yeah, and part of the reason is that he was like the Karl Rove of his day. Somebody that, yeah, he doesn't have any business being president, but he's the guy behind the president, and he ended up becoming president and doing a bad job of it, because political hacks are just kind of bad at being leaders. So... Tell us about his legacy as like a political leader, because his legacy really is inventing modern politics in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. When we think about political parties, especially in the early United States, um, if somebody has a background in that subject, uh, uh, probably the first thing that they think of are the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, later the Democratic Republicans, and that really intense rivalry between Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. But even though you can consider those groups political parties, they weren't political parties in the modern sense in which they had this convoluted organizational structure, local affiliates in every city that had some kind of centralized commander control. You didn't have any kind of unified campaign strategy. That only started much later. And the guy who invented pretty much all of that was Van Buren. And not only did he do it once, he did it twice at hmm. both the uh, state and the federal level. Uh, explain that. So when you, you know, I- I'm listening to a, a Wicked game about America's elections, and I started at Washington. I'm only like to to Jefferson. Like so, Washington was really, really aggrieved, and the founding fathers didn't really have a concept that they were creating a duopoly. They thought that they were creating something different, something more decentralized, and George Washington's immediate regret, really all of their immediate regrets except for Hamilton, uh, was that they created a two-party system, and that was never the intent, was to have a two-party parliamentary system. It was the states and local levels having all the power. Um, And like the extent of 
campaigning in that period was horse riders going around giving out leaflets. So how, what did Martin Van Buren do to evolve the concept of a political party? Because one of the things I found interesting in your article was that he wasn't ashamed of being part of a political party. He thought that it was an important institution in American life. So can you start there? Like, why, what, how, what did he think the parties were meant to do that was different than the founders? And how did he evolve it and wrangle it? Yeah, absolutely. So Van Buren saw political parties the way that a lot of people nowadays see civically inclined nonprofit organizations as this connecting body between Joe Schmo, the average citizen of upstate New York, and the business and affairs of government. And he not only understood that his actions would create a two-party system. Uh, That's exactly what he intended to do. He thought that too many political parties um, would create a situation in which there couldn't be any effective governance once one of the parties in question won an election over the other. And if you had one party, that would just be tyrannical. And he thought that the best way to broadly represent all the differing views within a certain political body was through two broad parties that had overarching principles with some flexibility in the middle there. And the purpose of the political party was to train people who had some kind of interest or passion about politics, but to do so in a way that you could filter out a lot of the bad people that would cause problems, while also creating opportunities for, oh my goodness, we found this extremely competent political operative on a farm somewhere that would have never gained any kind of political position otherwise because he wasn't part of the economic aristocracy. Let's give him a job and see what he does. And that's how he made a lot of his friends in politics because Van Buren came from that sort of background himself. And his first real political party was called uh, the Bucktails. And they were a faction of Democratic Republicans in New York that took control of the state government in 1822. And they wouldn't relinquish it until 1838. So it was a message that really resonated with people um, for a long time in that period. And it still resonates with people, even though they don't realize it. So in, in what way does it still resonate with people? Because everybody hates the two parties. What are you talking about, Gary? You're crazy. <laughs> I, I know. I'm insane. But the way it resonates with people is that a lot of basic campaign tactics, like mobilizing particular identity groups of people, canvassing door to door for political support, um, creating opportunities within the political party for people who are interested but don't really have a lot of experience um, to get involved. All those types of basic campaign political operative jobs Um, or the horde of staffers that descends on Washington, D.C. every now and again, all of that starts with Van Buren. So anytime that somebody engages in or participates within that system, they are unknowingly furthering Van Buren's legacy. So what are are a couple examples of innovation that he did? Like, give us some examples to back that up. 
Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, so in New York City in particular, um, Tammany Hall was a political machine that would grow to dominate the city's politics in uh, the 19th and for much of the 20th century. And Tammany Hall, especially much later on, was notoriously corrupt. They massive spoilage system, stole millions of dollars from people. Um, but they also won pretty much every election that they put even a modicum of effort in. Yeah. One of the best um, one of the best <laughs> books ever is Plunkett of Tammany Hall. It's the greatest yeah. political science book ever. I don't know if you've read it, but highly recommend Plunkett of Tammany Hall. And one of the reasons Tammany was able to achieve that degree of electoral dominance over New York City is because they were able to mobilize and integrate uh, Irish immigrants into their wider political infrastructure. The first time they did that was in 1828, before any of the economic schemes started coming into play. They first mobilized Irish immigrants uh, in 1828, and they did so in support of Andrew Jackson. Well, who was running Andrew Jackson's campaign in 1828? while also controlling any political action that happened in New York within the Democratic Party, Martin Van Buren. And it was the first time that anybody had done something like that. Uh, he continued to cultivate those kinds of community relationships, um, sort of establishing a partnership between the governing political party, uh, the policymakers, and then the community at large. He facilitated numerous um, actions within the state government. Um, he started getting involved in infrastructure projects. Uh, he was largely responsible for the expansion of suffrage to most property owning men in New York, which was, I mean, it seems ridiculous to us now, but it was pretty progressive for the time period. And he was just all over the place doing pretty much everything to get the modern political party going. That's fascinating. You know, let's let's defend the institution. I'm an institutionalist. Uh, if you're into history, I'm sure you are too, Gary. Um, <laughs> if you're on the center right and into history, you usually end up on the side of let's protect our institutions as it breeds stability and prosperity and harmony. Um, I, I think you raised some good points. And I think Van Buren in the quote, I'll, I'll read the quote here from your article, um, if I can find it here. I, I don't know if you have your article handy. Uh, oh, so here we go. Van Buren argued in his autobiography that the disposition to abuse power so deeply planted in the human heart can by no other means be more effectively, effectually checked than by a political party, and it, is, it has always therefore struck me as more honorable and manly to recognize their necessity to give them the credit they deserve. You know, this was in an era where you didn't have direct election of senators. The Constitution was originally meant to uh, have state legislators pick senators, not have direct uh, elections. Um, you know, the, the the progressives in the beginning of the 1900s really screwed everything up with some of this stuff. Uh, yeah. But their their yes, goal was basically to to check the power of the Tammany Halls because the part the party held power. These are unelected bureaucrats that hold too much power. I don't know. Looking now, that we necessarily have anything better in terms of the system that because we have more direct election and more uh, voters controlling 
who's in charge were sort of more at the mercy of public at propaganda in the in the uh, most neutral of terms as opposed to informed uh political operatives do you think that 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 I'm right in my assessment and that there is some wisdom to the political party being a good check on power and there is some some better system when you have people who are more politically active making decisions i'm not all the way a democrat <laughs> i don't know about you <laughs> but i look <laughs> yeah, at the i look I'm at the just... last 70 years and i'm like eh, i don't know I don't know if these people yeah, I'm are... in a similar position to you. Um, I like saying sometimes that I have competing Thomas Paine's super democratic and John Adams' super not democratic impulses, and they're at war with each other 100%. on basically every issue. Because I don't trust um, these but... rat bastards, but these dumb bastards over here, I don't trust them either. <laughs> exactly. But while I don't agree with Van Buren completely, I I think he was probably onto something and onto something pretty significant um because most if you look at most of american history and there are some very very obvious exceptions um huey long arguably donald trump come to mind but largely political parties have been able to prevent one particular figure from gaining disproportionate amount of control over the party to the point where they can do whatever they want. There's some check on their authority, some check on their power. Sometimes there, there may be a candidate that they really don't like, but the people really do like, or vice versa. I I think Mike Pence is a great example of this. You've got somebody that is a party man through and through who has political ambition, Mike Pence. I mean, I can tell you whatever you think of him, the guy truly believes what he says. He is absolutely an opportunist, but like he does, like I, I know too many people that work for Mike Pence to know that he isn't like a decent man on some level. Um, and when presented with the choice of going with the malignant narcissistic figure who's got the cult of personality, like the Trump or the Huey Long that you mentioned, that European capitals followed in the early 1900s. We had an institution that, and a figure in that specific moment that said, I'm going to protect the party and the institution, whether the party agrees or not. Uh, and that was an important check and balance because you had a party man there going, no, we're not going to go down this road with this dangerous figure. I mean, I'm all in that Donald Trump's entire plan was to keep power for himself, and that makes him ineligible to be president ever again or have any political power like too many libertarians want to dismiss january 6th but if it were a democrat they'd be screeching um but i think he's i think you're exactly right like there is an important check and balance just in that one moment of a guy who was really like mike pence was the republican party for 20 years he's the party man in a lot of ways uh, kind of restraining that absolute impulse for power yeah and i'm and obviously when i'm doing work like this i try my best to not cast too much judgment that's what i'm here for you be neutral but you're here here. i i I get to be the good history boy that keeps opinions to a minimum (laughs) um (laughs) but objectively speaking i think you're right in the sense that pence was the check on one person gaining 
a disproportionate amount of influence within uh, a political party. And that has happened pretty consistently throughout American history, because even somebody who's the party darling and seemingly had the world at their fingertips, like a JFK, for example, or a Dwight Eisenhower, they had to deal with Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, respectively, neither of whom they were the biggest fans of. They represented different aspects of the party, different parts of the country, and there was tension, there was conflict, and sometimes they acted as a check on one another. And it, it, it's a pretty consistent theme, and it prevents some of the nonsense and excess um, that you saw prior to that type of disciplined organization, like with uh, <laughs> Hamilton and Burr dueling each other, um, Jefferson and Hamilton constantly being at each other's throats, uh, Adams and Hamilton being constantly at each other's throats, Hamilton being at the throat of everybody else. Um, and and I, I think Van Buren was right in that it's an important mediating institution. Now, to what degree it should be an important mediating institution, that's an entirely different question. Um, but he had something going on there for sure. Yeah, I think... Um... Let's give one more defensive political parties based on on Martin Van Buren that I found a thought that I hadn't had. Right, and then we'll get to why they're all evil cabals. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, so the the mechanism of bringing people into the fold. This is one thing that I I have always appreciated about like my time in the Republican Party and my time in the Libertarian Party. I come from you know I was a party man myself uh, for those two parties. Um, I didn't, I didn't have the academic background. I came more from, you know, the activist side and I'm a recovering party man. So, I'm, right. I'm, <laughs> but there's something awesome about the community that you build working on a campaign with other people, the sitting around stuffing envelopes, eating bad pizza, uh, the little insights that you get starting at the bottom rung and kind of working your way up to higher echelons, you know, a buddy of mine that was college Republicans president before me is now in the state house. Uh, you know, and then the guys like him move up, like the party men kind of start stuffing envelopes and move their way up from precinct committeeman to city councilor to mayor to governor to, you know, like there's a farm team, right? There's a, there's a natural vetting, just like water moving through, you know, sand in the river, it gets cleansed over time. There's something beneficial about political parties in that it is a check and balance on finding out who's crazy and who belongs at the table and who doesn't. That's also bad. Uh, so was that Van Buren's point? Like, you know, in there, like that parties are that cleansing effect, but they also build community. I don't know if I, at least in my reading of him, I'm not sure that he would be entirely on board with the building community aspect. But in terms of filtering out talent, establishing who belongs at the table and who doesn't, that was one of his what that was one of the primary tenets. And he didn't start out being top dog in politics himself. He had to work from the ground up. And when he was in charge of first the uh, the Bucktails in the Albany Regency in New York, 
and then the Democratic Party throughout the whole country, he made decisions and promotions based entirely on merit. Uh, he wasn't really recruiting extensively from these old aristocratic families that had political connections out the wazoo. He was recruiting from people who had started on the ground and had shown themselves to be men of talent and considerable political skill. Uh, so in that sense, that's absolutely what he was thinking of and what he was trying to accomplish. All right, now let me uh, be the voice of the listener. Who the heck do you two think you are? These political parties are just cabals. To You're just, like, <laughs> creating better thieves is what you're doing with these political parties. This guy sounds like an absolute villain. How could, you know, so defend Martin Van Buren if you can. Like, I, I imagine there's somebody listening going, political parties are ter- terrible, Gary. This is a terrible system. Why are we promoting this as a valuable idea? Well... I mean, obviously, whether or not political parties are evil is a distinctly normative judgment. I have my views. A lot of people are going to have a lot of other views that are considerably different than mine. But my argument would be, and I think Van Buren would agree, is that even if you accept the argument that political parties are evil, they are perhaps an inevitable and necessary one. Um, similar to if you go with uh, the tenets of American liberal political theory, government itself is an inevitable and necessary evil. Because any time that you have any kind of representative government, you are going to have factions. And those factions are going to coalesce around certain policies and principles and um, personalities, perhaps. And if you want to mitigate the harmful effects that factionalism can have, maybe the political party should be a well-oiled machine so that it can do, it can enact the principles that it sets out to enact once it gets into power and at a more base level engages with the community in a way that allows people to exercise their, their rights as citizens and become politically involved. Yeah, I think we give a lot of, I think libertarians especially, because the Libertarian Party people do a disservice with the duopoly talk sometimes because they're ignorant of what's happening in those other parties, which is absolute bloodshed a lot of times. Like, <laughs> there's a great book um, uh, by uh, about Nixon's comeback, The Greatest Comeback by Pat Buchanan. And it's so well written and so interesting that's about Buchanan kind of navigating all the different channels with Nixon to to get the nomination in 68 after his humiliating defeat in 60. And you just, those factions haven't really gone away. Like there's Mitch Daniels Republicans and Mike Pence Republicans in this state and Donald Trump Republicans. And that's just in Indiana, right? Like, and then there's libertarians and libertarians have their own factions. So, so I guess Gary, like sometimes we look at, the two party choices and don't give enough credence to inner inner party fights you know as my buddy uh the host of leaders and legends robert vane says yeah expect a democrat to oppose you or a libertarian right 
But if another yeah. Republican opposes you, that's the most bitter fight is the inner party fights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in, in Van Buren's time, some of the infighting, especially later on within the Democratic Party, could get extremely uh, brutal. And you have echoes of it now with every Republican saying that, no, I am the real MAGA Republican. Right. And Van Buren's time, it was, no, I'm really Andrew Jackson's successor. Mm-hmm. And then you had John Calhoun, who was just doing his own thing entirely. <laughs> Racistly <laughs> as possible. <laughs> exactly. And then you just had John Calhoun in the corner spouting racist nonsense. Just one of the most evil <laughs> people in American politics ever. If you don't know much about John Calhoun, like, oof. Yeah, my, uh, my good buddy... Um, Tyler, I for, I forget. I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. It's either Sick or Psych or something like that. But regardless, he's studying political theory at the University of Virginia. Um, he made a great point the other day that it took a considerable amount of talent to get Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams to hate your guts, and John Calhoun achieved it. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to start wrapping up. You've been you've been uh, so fun to talk to. I could talk about this all day. Yes. Gary, uh, give us your shameless self promotion time. Where can people follow you if they want to read more? <laughs> please tell them where. Well, if you want my education policy reporting and writing, you'll find that with Chalkboard Review. Um, if you want my more philosophical diatribes, I appear in all sorts of outlets, but most frequently with the American Institute for Economic Research. And if you want my random thoughts, uh, my Twitter is Frankel Garion. It's Garion is Marion with a G. All right. Very good. Uh, all right, Gary, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. All right, thank you so much to everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this program as I did, then please share it with your friends and family. That's how we help grow. And then please make sure you go follow Gary. All right, thank you, and we will see you again soon. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.